you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. LAS Studios. It's July of 2021 in the forests of Northern California when a tree comes into contact with an electrical line belonging to PG&E and kicks out some sparks. Now to some breaking news on the Dixie Fire, which this evening engulfed much of the Plumas County town of Greenville. This is video just into the KTV newsroom within the last hour, showing homes and businesses. Day after day, the Dixie Fire feeds off bone-dry shrubs, grasses, and trees, tearing across the traditional homelands of the Maidu, getting so big that it generates a pyrocumulonimbus cloud, a gigantic towering monster stretching some 30,000 feet in the air, creating its own lightning. After swelling 110 square miles in a single day, California's Dixie Fire is now the largest anywhere in the country. Burning nearly a million acres. Everything that I own is now ashes or twisted metal. Destroying more than 1,300 structures. It looks like this for blocks. Homes and buildings that have withstood the test of time for over 100 years, decimated. Nearly wiping the town of Greenville off the map. Our town's going, going, going. Strangely enough, though, just a few miles from town, in the middle of a forest turned to ash, there's a bunch of green. Trees still very much alive, surrounding a house still very much standing. And out front, there's a guy staring at it. Well, I think I was beyond surprise. I was just in relief. Just days before, firefighters had warned Jeff Grief that they wouldn't be able to save his house from the fire. So he had left, not knowing what would happen to it. Yet there the house stood. But to Jeff, when he thought about it, it actually made sense. My place was an island of green because I had done the thinning work and the underburning that uh, cleans up the, the duff on the forest floor and uh, reduces the amount of fuel that's there. Just five months earlier, Jeff had hosted a Trex event on the property. If you remember from the last episode, I spent a few days observing a Trex event, a prescribed fire training exchange. Well, they did a bunch of prescribed burns all around his home to clear out the fuel that had been building up. So when the fire arrived... As it passed by my house and around my house, it caused the fire to be of very low intensity. Whereas elsewhere, where there had not been prescribed fire, the fire was of very high intensity because of the ground fuels. While a huge, high-severity wall of flames destroyed the forests around his property, when it got to the areas they'd treated, it laid down. And indeed, firefighters hadn't been there to defend it. Shortly after the fire, one of the uh, Cal Fire chiefs left his card in my door and he wrote on the back of it, all of your hard work paid off, which uh, was very gratifying to get. So 
Is it accurate to say that your property was saved by prescribed burning? Absolutely, yes. Like we talked about in previous episodes, good fire on the landscape, especially in forested areas, can help make forests more resilient to the megafires we're seeing, help make them more resilient to climate change, can help protect homes and lives. It's clear prescribed burning is an amazing tool. It's widely recognized as critical to our future. Estimates say that there are as many as 30 million acres of California that could benefit from good fire and landscape management. And we've got this goal in the state, that we want to burn 400,000 acres a year by 2025. When I sign this bill today, uh, we'll be advancing the cause of more prescribed burns in this state, more home hardening. In 2021, though, we burned just around 100,000 acres. Even the governor's own wildfire task force says we need to burn more. So why, even though we know it's the answer, are we not burning the way we need to? One of the most experienced burn bosses in California, hands down, and he just got certified yesterday, <laughs> a year and a half later. We said, don't start on, along our sacred ceremonial trails. Why even stay involved in a conversation with someone like that? It uh, just seems futile to me. We often talk about wildfire and climate change, like it's an act of God. No, acknowledge the part that you have in contributing through fire exclusion and fire suppression, the removal of native people. This is The Big Burn. I'm Jacob Margolis. There's this whole humongous book-long list of bureaucratic and other cultural reasons we're not burning the way we need to in the Western U.S. But for this episode, we're going to zoom in on what's getting in the way of doing more prescribed burns in California. And I want to start by answering a really basic question, which is who is responsible for burning? Well, for a little more than half of the state, it's the feds. National parks, national forests, those sorts of places. They have their own rules and politics going on there. But for the other half which includes state and private land, the main big dog agency that controls most things fire, including who burns, is CAL FIRE. CAL FIRE is a $3.7 billion plus fire suppression machine built up over 80 years, which as of 2010, didn't even have prescribed burning on its radar. And that's according to the guy who used to run it. Ken Pimlot, retired chief of CAL FIRE. Was that, uh, did you enjoy, or did you enjoy your time as the chief? Yeah. I mean, it had its challenges, of course, but I, I enjoyed my entire 30-plus year career with CAL FIRE. Last eight years as the chief were, it was certainly eye-opening. Ken Pimlot was in charge of CAL FIRE from 2010 until 2018, the beginning of the most destructive decade on record in California wildfire history, what we've been calling the new normal. And Ken has been there on the ground in one way or another as CAL FIRE faced all sorts of changes. Back in episode three, we talked about how in the 1960s, agencies began to realize that fire suppression in our forests isn't always the answer. So, Ken says, Cal Fire started to make some changes. And by the 1980s, it had even developed a small prescribed burn program. We were at that time burning probably 50 to 60,000 acres a year early in the program. 
Over the years, that program waned. He says some of it was resource issues. And when there's limited money to spend, it's often easier to justify spending it on fire suppression. Everybody understands firefighters responding to fires, protecting people, the emergencies. We see it on TV. It's bread and butter. It's protecting people. That's what people can get behind. And when there's a, when budget increases occur, they occur because Cal Fire and others are able to articulate what the needs are to protect the public. By the time Ken became chief in 2010, burning wasn't a focus for Cal Fire. A few years later, though, he says he was forced to pay attention to prescribed burning because Native American tribes, scientists, community groups were saying, hey, we want to burn in our forests. We need to burn. But Cal Fire is standing in the way. Enforcing burn bans during longer stretches of the year, saying that if it's not safe to burn in one part of the state, we're going to ban burning all over. And Ken says they did that because they were concerned about resources, that if a prescribed burn escaped, they wanted to have people nearby to put it out. Then Ken is approached by a representative of the Karuk tribe and told, this is a problem. We know it's safe to burn where we are. When I realized that decisions we were making to protect all of California, we weren't thinking about it from an individual perspective. And Let's take some opportunity to identify those places where we can get this done. And so the following year, we worked with the tribe and provided what they needed, allowed that burn to happen. And quite frankly, it was that first foot in the door to start the conversation. But Ken says after decades of inaction around prescribed fire, things moved slowly. And so in those early years of that decade, trying to, I equate it to turning an aircraft carrier because we've got an entire cultural mindset of an organization going one way and we need, need to make a shift, even one degree, to reinvest, quite frankly, in our roots, what we know is important and what we were good at doing decades before. That era is when we really recognized we're in this together. Since then, the fire problem in California has continued to get worse, making the need for prescribed burning even more urgent. Cal Fire is slowly turning the aircraft carrier, doing more prescribed burns. And prescribed burning is a core part of the state's most recent strategic fire plan. Cal Fire's training up a fuels treatment force of its own, which has grown to 130 people. Right now, there are as many as 30 million acres across the state that could benefit from fuels treatment. One of the biggest issues we have on the prescribed fire front is that there just aren't enough people to do all the burns we need. And this people problem, one way to address it is by getting more people trained and certified to lead burns, to empower the people who want to become maybe the coolest sounding thing ever. Burn bosses. That's after the break. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day -day and located in your community and nationwide. 
All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. To understand why we don't have nearly enough burn bosses in California, I wanted to talk to someone who's been deeply involved in the issue, Lania Quinn-Davidson. So when I was up in Humboldt last winter, I drove over to her house. Uh, shoes off? What are they, buddy? No. You're fine. I, I'm... It was dark by the time I got there, just in time to uh, interrupt her kid's bedtime routine. What's your name? Mom. No, it's Lania. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so can I get your name, your title, how you like to be identified? Yeah, sure. So my name is Lania Quinn Davidson, and I am the fire advisor for the University of California Cooperative Extension. Okay. So can you explain to me a bit about what you do? Yeah, so one of the things that I've been really focused on in the last couple of years is the development of a new California state-certified burn boss program. Unfortunately, there there were a lot of holdups within CAL FIRE because CAL FIRE is certifying that program and, you know, they're kind of backing it at the state level. And they haven't had confidence in the idea of the program. In 2018, California legislators passed a bill meant to help build up the state's prescribed burn infrastructure. The state-certified prescribed fire burn boss program, as it's so excitingly called, is a critical piece to this whole thing, says Lania. It's kind of like burn bosses oversee burns the way directors oversee a film set. They come up with the game plan, or the prescription in this case, make sure the weather's right, figure out how many firefighters and fire engines they need. And then when the burn happens, they're on the ground, organizing everyone and leading. If you're a private landowner and you want to burn, you might turn to a private burn boss to get the job done. There's a gigantic problem, though, because if you want to hire someone right now, We don't have enough people to do this work. We had maybe five or six until a couple years ago, but a lot of folks have been losing their insurance. Insurance. If you're a director running a film set without it, it'd be a huge liability. If you're a burn boss setting stuff on fire without it, even though fewer than 2% of prescribed burns escape, if one does, you might have a problem. You don't need insurance to lead a burn. But if you're the kind of person who wants to do this work for hire, you'd be kind of crazy to just do it without insurance, right? Which brings us back to the burn boss certification program. The feds have their own burn boss qualifications. And back in 2018, California wanted its own too. Lania was asked to help put together the criteria. One of the goals of this new certification was for the state to create a pathway for non-firefighters to become prescribed burn leaders. The other goal was that if people could get approved and Cal Fire said they were qualified, maybe it would give the private insurance market confidence to give them coverage, says Lania. 
Again, this insurance issue is such an important piece of the puzzle. And Lania hoped that a certification program would allow more people to get insured and that more burning would happen. She spent two years working with a handful of other people to develop the certification program. And in May of 2021, she finally held her first class. She says she wanted to get people through as fast as she could. And so she stacked the class with people that had extensive experience in this field. Some people who she says had already met the federal government requirements for becoming a burn boss. So these are some of the best burn bosses in California. You know, people who have 40 years under their belt leading prescribed fire. And so for those people, it was kind of funny to be in this class. And, and there, there was some eye rolling. You know, they're like, really, we have to come take this class to be certified to do something that they are more experienced than the people instructing the class by, by a lot, you know, because they've been doing this forever. The course wrapped up, and then the process stalled, she says. Lania needed Cal Fire to certify her students. And she said about eight months went by. You know, I would send emails and no one would even respond to me. And so there was that element of just unresponsiveness. But um, there was also this element of questioning people's qualifications. Lania felt like there was a distrust on the part of Cal Fire, especially towards people in her class who hadn't come up as firefighters through the Cal Fire system. In response, a spokesperson for Cal Fire told me, no, it does not have distrust to people who haven't previously worked with the agency, that it took time to develop the new certification process, and that it kept in touch with Lenya throughout. A year and a half later, though, out of the 19 people that took the class, when I interviewed Lenya, she said only six of them were state-certified burn bosses. I just got an email last night from one of the participants in that very first class. And he is a, he's a retired federal burn boss. He actually owns a whole fire suppression company that works all across California, all over the country, doing fire work, prescribed fire and fire suppression work. One of the most experienced burn bosses in California, hands down. And he just got certified yesterday, <laughs> a year and a half later. Cal Fire said delays in certification are on those who attended the classes. When I reached out to the person Lania mentioned, he told me that, yes, he was delayed in filing all of the proper paperwork, but that the process was far from straightforward. So even if a certified burn boss wants to go lead a burn tomorrow, there's still no guarantee that they can go and get private liability coverage, says Lania. In general, they're just... There just aren't policies available. It's non-existent. And a lot of the groups that had liability insurance that included prescribed fire have been canceled in recent years. And, you know, it's not because prescribed fires have gotten out of control. Like, we don't have examples of, of that in California. But it's more because insurance companies are just kind of walking away from fire in general, right? Fire in California, messy, costly, the state has stepped in, though, in an effort to address some of the issue. There's now a prescribed fire claims fund backed up by the state that has $20 million put into it meant to help cover prescribed burners if something does happen. Some of the details are still being worked out. Lania's running more certification classes, hoping to get more people qualified. And she says she sees a fundamental clash of cultures here. Between Cal Fire, which she feels is motivated to burn primarily from a wildfire reduction standpoint, who just recently adopted prescribed fire again, and the people that Lania works with a lot, 
who have been doing this for ages. And sure, may want to reduce wildfire risk, but are also approaching burning from what she sees as a fundamentally different standpoint. Like the Native American fire practitioners that Lania works with. I think too often we view prescribed fire through the lens of reducing wildfire. And we forget about the reasons why most of us burn, which are for ecological and cultural reasons. It's more about caring for place and understanding that that piece of ground needs fire and it needs it like this, not like that. And, you know, there's so much more nuance and kind of care that goes into it. And this is an agency that at its core really isn't about restoring fire. It's about putting fires out. I mean, they're a great fire suppression agency. That is what they do. They are hugely effective at that. But the prescribed fire thing is just not really their wheelhouse. And I just don't see that Cal Fire is the agency who can bring that. And so I guess the the feeling I think that many of us who work in that space have is it's great to have a partnership with the state, but to have them be in charge of it and be calling the shots around it when they don't actually understand it in the same ways that we do, it's a source of tension. It's a, you know, it's a... um, There's a lot of friction there. When asked, a CAL FIRE spokesperson said the agency does prescribe burns for a variety of reasons, including to improve landscape health. What I will say is that across the board, everyone I talk to in the fire world wants more prescribed burning. But there is a very clear tension between all these different parties between the big institutions that are trying to turn their aircraft carriers and the people on the ground who've been doing this for generations, who have to wait for them to catch up. For years now, the state and federal government have been talking about the importance of Native American cultural knowledge around bringing fire back to the landscape. They've said that they want help from these groups, that they see the importance of cultural burners. But many of the practitioners I've been talking to say the government hasn't always been a good partner in this process. While I was up in the Klamath Mountains, I decided to visit someone, someone I've been meaning to talk to for a while. Through months of reporting, I'd been hearing people talk about this guy because he's long been navigating the bureaucracy of fire and tribal rights here in California. He's the guy I've been seeing over and over on all sorts of influential policy documents and papers. Assume your bill. His name nice is Bill Tripp, the Director of Natural Resources and Environmental Policy for the Karuk Tribe's Department of Natural Resources. The state and the feds say they want help from indigenous groups to treat the land, from people like Bill. But what I wanted to know was, how's that been playing out on the ground? When I arrived at his house, I walked past some garden beds, Bill's cat that wanted some pets, and we sat on chairs on his front lawn, about six feet apart. Bill's been hard to get a hold of because he's been busy with press and meetings and government stuff. When we do meet in person, he's warm and engaged. It's been a hectic day, man. Skipping back and forth between meetings and about half asleep from this booster shot. You're a busy guy. Oh, uh, man, trying to do email simultaneously. Yeah, it's a little bit crazy how busy. I've been up since 3.30 this morning. I'm sorry. That started at 4. 
So I'm about 12 hours in almost now. We get to talking about how he got involved in fire in the first place, how his great-grandmother taught him to burn when he was four, and how his life's goal since he was eight years old has been to help bring fire back to his people. It just seemed like that was like the biggest injustice um, that I could find in the entirety of what I was taught. So that's what I chose to do. Unlike some tribes in the state, the Karuk tribe doesn't have a reservation. The treaties that were signed with the U.S. government in the 1800s were never ratified. They have these disparate patches of land surrounded by U.S. national forest. And they've had to fight to have a say over how their broader ancestral lands are managed. They can't always just go out and burn, tend to the land for spiritual reasons, make it healthier. Even though the dense stands of Douglas fir fuel destructive and deadly fire. Like in 2020, when the Slater fire destroyed 150 homes in nearby Happy Camp, killing two people. Bill says that if they want to treat their ancestral land, they've often got to deal with the government, depending on where they want to burn. Which Bill says has meant sitting through countless meetings with local agency people, and meetings where people say one thing, but then turn around and do something else. The agencies are saying, we want to work with you in a manner that um, respects and honors uh, tribal sovereignty, uh, self-governance, and self-determination. Um, wherein, you know, right afterwards they say, okay, well, uh, we really don't know what those things mean and we have to approve you doing anything. And so that creates tension. Bill tells me about this one fuels reduction and forest health project in Six Rivers National Forest in northeastern California, where there were years of back and forth between the tribe and the U.S. Forest Service because the project was going to happen right along their sacred ceremonial trails. We said, don't start on, along our sacred ceremonial trails because we're going to have to teach these contractors how to you know, communicate and respect the space. Well, where did they start it? Right on that ceremonial trail. And we had dozers going up the trail and skidding logs up the trail. And it's like where they weren't even supposed to be. You know, they just did whatever they could to, um, to do what they wanted to do, regardless of what we said. The Kaduk tribe and others filed a lawsuit, and a U.S. district judge found that the Forest Service had violated the National Historic Preservation Act. And um, why? Why even stay involved in a conversation with someone like that? I don't, it uh, just seems futile to me. By the way, we reached out, and the U.S. Forest Service didn't respond in time for the release of this episode. If you remember from the last episode, Native American fire practitioners burn not just to protect against high-severity fire, but for cultural and spiritual reasons as well. They still face insurance and funding issues, and say they still get stopped by Cal Fire and the feds from treating the land, even when practitioners know conditions are good for it. When I talk to Bill about all this, on one hand, he says that things are getting better with government agencies. But on the other hand, he's tired. For decades, he's been trying to bring fire back to his people, trying to protect their traditional ecological knowledge and expand where they can apply it. And I asked him what his eight-year-old self that wanted to bring fire back would think about the work he's done. 
I would probably think that I was silly trying to work within these systems that they're just futile and they're built on you know they're built on racist foundations um I think that you know if things were a little bit different um you know I probably would if I would have known what I know now I would have probably started trying to build different systems for putting fire back on the ground rather than trying to work within existing systems. Um, who knows how successful that would be. I've been thinking a lot about the people like Bill who choose to do this work inside a system that disrespects them, that believes in fundamentally different things than they do, that expects them to be part of cleaning up the mess. And there's another person in that position who I really wanted to talk to. That's after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Are you Frank? Yeah, I am. Oh, I'm Jacob. Yeah, hi, Jacob. I meet up with Frank Lake at his home in Arcata in Northern California, at a blue house with a basketball hoop out front, and one of those signs telling neighbors to slow down because there might be kids nearby. And uh, I can get you water, ginger ale, coffee. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Frank's of Karuk ancestry. And like Bill, Frank has chosen to try and change things from the inside. He's a research ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service and also a tribal liaison. Frank's body of experience, he tells me, that of a Western-trained scientist, but also someone who's a tribal descendant who works with tribes throughout the region, is complicated and difficult for him. Do you feel like you're carrying the weight of an awful lot, especially being in both worlds? Tremendously. There's intergenerational trauma and legacy that's pervasive through my family. I'm the one who went away to get Western educated. I'm the oldest son who expected to hold a cultural knowledge and practice of my family. Words on me all the time. That I'm not native enough, that I'm Western academically trained, so I'm them. Yeah, it's tough. And then I guess there was a point recently where now all these journalists start to show up at your door or politicians start to show up at your door and go, uh, you know, solve this problem for us. Yeah when that was never seen a value or worth until it affected them. 
Native people have been pleading for help and recognition for a long time. This only became important when it started burning down million-dollar mansion homes and affecting the privileged. For someone like me, having grown up, you know, not apprised of Native history, I come to mountains like this and I see all the Doug firs. My first reaction is one of like, this is lovely. Green is good. Green is good, exactly. And so that's one of the things that I'm, I'm hoping to, that I think is really difficult to convey to people that have grown up with that and have some, like buried deep in their hearts a love for, for that and to then tell them that that is, that that is wrong. And, and that's the, a product of genocide, a product of colonization. That's a product of environmental degradation and vulnerability and a lack of resistance and ad adaptive capacity. One reason I came to Frank is because I had wanted him to explain how the genocide of Native Americans affected landscapes across California, with the hope that I could convey to the audience what sort of world might be possible for us to return to if we follow through with good fire practices. And in truth, I had wanted a simple explanation in the hope that we could arrive at something of a simple solution. So if you don't mind, I would like to go back to before the 1850s. And so in order to do that and to present it to an audience that uh, knows literally nothing yeah. about any of this, as I'm sure you've had to explain all of this in a very basic manner for a long time. And I know it's overwhelmingly big and I don't want to, I don't want you to think that I, that I, uh, I want to discount any sort of history or anything like that. But so you want it simple without detail? I, I want detail. I, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. but... No, it's fair. It's fair. It's fair. Yeah. And as a settler, have to understand it's a complex history over generations and thousands of years. Can you understand that? Can you at least begin to acknowledge that? Because if you can, then what you assume to be natural, it's a product of indigenous engagement with their place. There was an extreme amount of indigenous modification and environment that was intentional and purposeful, that was embedded in all aspects of their culture and their belief systems and practices that relate to modifying the fire regime. Is there a level of frustration from you also in terms of someone like me coming in and asking you these questions and wanting to uh, break down some of that history? Would you prefer that I not be not be asking you this stuff by any chance? I, I don't want to upset you or anything like that. No, you know. I see I'm agitated. And the reason why is because it's a sophisticated and deep process. And so for you to asking me to generalize it so you can communicate it to your audience, your audience needs to realize there's a deep complexity here. And there's a part of colonial debt that they need to challenge themselves to understand the history that they're the benefactors of. And I used to think there was benefits in like being a translator or being somehow a liaison, which I actually am, but that is honestly very, very hard. One side feels very resentful and dispossessed of what's happened to them. The other side is coming to terms with what it means to acknowledge their position of privilege as a colonial institution of the agency or as a settler who's the beneficiary of maybe what their ancestors did or not, but not even realizing that there's this tension space and I'm in the middle of it. And now 
with climate change and everything burning down and poor landscape management for so long, now we're at the point where people are turning to indigenous groups to go, hey, can like save us, help us, all this stuff. And now for the American society to come back and be like, hey, you have the last little bit of whatever you've been holding on to, and we want that to help save us. Not what we can do to help empower you to revitalize your culture, to help recover your cultural practices that also are going to improve the environment and help us adapt to climate change. Again, it's still very extractive. There's still a very big expectation that the Native people who have been had so much taken and have already had to give so much are now the ones who are expected to have the burden to find solutions to help to colonize or decolonize and deconstruct it, which is really also inappropriate. It's more important now, I would say, is, well, what are the conditions in which we can respectfully work with indigenous people as a way to bring in their fire knowledge and cultural practices, just not the benefit, again, just to benefit Western society, but in a way that has to say, well, how can we help indigenous people recover their cultural knowledge and practice? I mean, that is a way of assistance and support rather than asking them for one more thing to help me. That's going to benefit my position of privilege to allow me to have the golf course that in the vineyard that is over ancestral orchards and sites and not to put it back on the tribes to be the ones that now you have to help us solve this. They can look to them for solutions, but in order to do that, it has to be commensurate with the level of tribal support. If you're looking to learn then you also need to be able to be a good partner in that process. And to you, what does that look like? Well, it's a lot different for me as a personal person, as a scientist, but for me as a good partner, when it comes from the agency side, is to acknowledge again, own up to and take responsibility for what you've created and contributed to. We often talk about the wildfire and it's climate change, like it's an act of God. No, acknowledge the part that you have and contributing through fire exclusion and fire suppression, the removal of native people, we have the ability to be humble and learn from indigenous people to, in a respectful way, show up and be part of the solution. Next episode, we explore what ideas California can borrow from places that have got fire management more figured out. There are two places in the U.S. that actually figured this out, and they're really different. These places are the prescribed fire capital of the United States of America. The other option is, frankly, what's going on in California. Let wildfire basically manage your landscape. And that is a devastating option. That's next time on The Big Burn. The Big Burn is created, written, reported, and hosted by me, Jacob Margolis. Shana Naomi Krokmal is our vice president of podcasts. Antonia Serajito and Leo G are the executive producers for LAS Studios. Our producer is Minju Park, with additional production by Anjuli Sastri-Kerbacek. Bruno Lopez-Vega is our intern. 
Natalie Chudnovsky is the senior producer. Editing by Meg Kramer. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios. Professor Teresa Greger is our native cultural content reader. Sound design and mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Original music by Andy Clausen. Our website, LAS.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAS Studios. The marketing team of LAS Studios created our branding. Artwork for the show by Dan Carino. Thanks to the team at LAS Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Casentino, and Leo G. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The Strelo family and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Big Burn is a production of LAS Studios. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.